The Polynesian Paralysis Podcast, Episode 38. In the last episode of the Polynesian Paralysis Podcast, we looked at the novel The Trouble with Paradise by David A. Ross, published in 1998. In this amazing work of fiction, the main character, Julian, arrives in Maui for a few weeks after being divorced and taking early retirement. He ends up buying a boat and experiencing Polynesian paralysis while getting stranded on an uncharted island in the Pacific and finding Amelia Earhart. It is quite a story. Today we're going to Alabama and examine the life of an amazing woman, Maddie Norman Ellis, as told by her daughter, Carolyn Ellis Lipscomb, in the book A Widow's Might, published in 1999. The author, Carolyn Ellis Lipscomb, was born on April 25, 1929, in the Methodist Church Parsonage in Pineapple, and that's Pine Apple with two words, Pineapple, Alabama, to the Reverend Henry Marvin and Maddie Norman Ellis. When she was four, her father died, leaving her mother a widow with six children. The oldest sister, Gay, brothers Howard, Norman, and Wesley, then Carolyn and her younger sister, Lamar. Growing up during the Depression in the 1930s, her family had little income and was very poor. Everyone in the community was struggling to make ends meet, but members of the church willingly shared produce from their gardens and butter and eggs whenever they could. Carolyn attended Alabama Polytechnical Institute in Auburn, Alabama, which is now Auburn University. Auburn University was chartered in 1856 as East Alabama Male College, a private liberal arts school affiliated with the Methodist Episcopal Church South. In 1872, under the Morrill Act, it became the state's first land-grant university and was renamed the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Alabama. In 1892, it became the first four-year co-educational school in Alabama, and in 1899 was renamed Alabama Polytechnical Institute, or API. In 1960, its name was changed to Auburn University to acknowledge the varied academic programs and larger curriculum of a major university. Carolyn graduated in three years with high honors. After graduation, class of 1949, with a degree in math education, she began a teaching career with posts in Chattanooga, Pittsburgh, Bay Minette, and Suffern, New York. While in Suffern, near New York City, she took graduate courses at Columbia with the idea of advancing her career. However, during a visit back home to Auburn, she began dating Andrew D. Lipscomb, who went by the name Lan. Lan was six years older, but Catherine knew him and his family from church and remembered how Lan's grandmother, Kate Dowell Lipscomb, with her Dowell sisters, brought gifts one lean Christmas to her and the other Ellis children soon after they moved to Auburn. Lan and Carolyn fell in love and they married June 3, 1955. Lan was a pharmacist and owner of the Lipscomb Drugstore in the middle of the College Street block of downtown Auburn, and Carolyn became a housewife and bookkeeper. She was a partner in the running of the business concern, but had more of a sole proprietorship in the enterprise of raising their four children. 1993 would be a year of sorrow for the author Carolyn Ellis Lipscomb. In March, her mother, Maddie Norman Ellis, the focus of the book, 
a widow's mite, would pass away at the age of 93. Two months later in July, her husband of 38 years, Lan Lipscomb, would pass away at the age of 70. At the age of 64, Carolyn found the courage and determination that she learned from her mother to write the book, A Widow's Might, a true story about her mother's remarkable life. Carolyn used daily journals, family letters, letters from friends, newspaper accounts, personal interviews, and court records to gather the material for her book in order to create an accurate telling of the story about her mother, Maddie Norman, referred throughout the book as Mama. Mama was born in 1900 in a small town in Oklahoma. This was when Oklahoma was a territory and before Oklahoma became the 46th state of the Union in 1907. Carolyn does not include a lot of information about Mama's early life, but it appears that her father died when she was young and her mother, or Carolyn's grandmother, moved the family to State Line, Mississippi, where Mama grew up. Unfortunately, Mama was not able to finish high school because her family was poor and her mother wanted Mama to take a job to help with family expenses. Mama wanted to take a business course, and her older brother convinced their mother that it would be good for Mama and he would pay all the expenses associated with the business class. Mama finished the business class when she was 18 years old and went to work at a local bank as the secretary to the bank president. While working at the bank, Mama met a bookkeeper, Henry Marvin Ellis, from the local lumber company who used to come to the bank almost daily to take care of company business. He was a bachelor and almost 16 years older than Mama, but they fell in love and were married on Mama's 20th birthday. Soon after the wedding, Henry decided to go into the Methodist ministry, just like his father and his grandfather. Mama was a small woman, only five feet tall and weighing about 100 pounds. During the next 11 years, Mama would give birth to six children, three boys and three girls. After the sixth child was born, Mama weighed in at 106 pounds, and she claimed that she had gained one pound for each child. Carolyn, the author of the book, was the fifth child born in 1929. In November 1932, the Reverend Henry Marvin Ellis moved his family to the small town of Utah, Alabama. It's pronounced Utah, but it's spelled E-U-T-A-W. He had recently been appointed as the pastor of the Utah Methodist Church. Unfortunately, the Reverend Ellis was already sick when he arrived in Utah, and he never got to preach at the church. Four months later, in the spring of 1933, at the age of 49, he died, leaving Mama a widow at the age of 33 during the Great Depression of the 1930s with six young children, ages 1 to 13. Mama was determined to keep her children together and raise them herself. She had many offers from various people who wanted to help, but Mama would not consider breaking up her family. Her own sister called her a damn fool for thinking she could raise six kids as a single mother. Fortunately, she had the support of many friends in the small town of Utah and her church family. Mama got a temporary job, but the family had little income and almost no savings. They did not own a car, so the family walked while in town or took the train when they visited family and friends out of town.
One day, Mama realized if she wanted her kids to attend college, it would be better if they lived in a college town. So she asked a friend to help her to find a job in Auburn, and he did. So Mama left her children with a friend and moved to Auburn for a few weeks to begin a new job. In the fall of 1934, Mama returned to Utah to pack up her few belongings and move her family to Auburn. Mama eventually landed a job as secretary to the Dean of Agriculture at Auburn University. She worked five full days and a half day on Saturday for the Dean's office, and she also typed many theses and dissertations to supplement her income. She did her typing on an old Underwood manual typewriter, and erasures or the use of whiteout was not allowed, so if she made a single mistake typing, she would have to retype the entire page. Their first house in Auburn was a small four-bedroom, two bedrooms upstairs and two bedrooms downstairs, and only had one bathroom. Mama paid $35 in rent for the house. Mama and her six kids lived in the two bedrooms upstairs, and Mama rented out the two downstairs bedrooms to four college guys who paid $5 every month. All 11 of them, Mama, her six kids, and the four college guys, shared the single bathroom in the small house. The Methodist Church and its members were always very supportive of Mama, and they did what they could to assist her as a single mother. Since the death of her husband, the Methodist Church had supplied an annual widow's pension in the amount of $110. Mama would normally use this money to pay for school expenses for her six kids. In 1941, she only received $45 from the church. When she inquired, her local pastor smugly told her that he had reported to the church that they should reduce her pension because her children were dressed as well as any other children in the church. Of course, all her children were wearing hand-me-down clothes, and Mama had sewed many of their clothes from free fabric. For several years, Mama had to make do with a reduced pension, but in 1945, the church reinstated the full pension. The next several chapters are filled with wonderful stories of growing up in Auburn, Alabama in the 1940s and 50s. Carolyn shares her memories of the family's first radio, a gift from a neighbor, which provided some entertainment, and of course, the first family telephone, a party line shared by several neighbors. The six kids would line up and take turns making phone calls to their friends, always aware that others might be listening to their every word. Chapter 7 is titled Music. Mama was a firm believer in paying as you go. If she couldn't pay cash for something, then the family did without. Except when it came to music. Mama bought a used piano for $50 and paid $5 down and $5 a month until it was paid off. Mama never had the chance to play the piano herself, but she was determined that her children would have the gift of music in their lives. Mama also bought tickets to local concerts for the children. Chapter 8 introduces a man named Reuben, but Carolyn notes that this is not his real name. Reuben was the son of a local family who owned several houses in Auburn, including the house that Mama rented. Reuben had a sad and hard life. His father was a brilliant scientist, but he had a mean temper, and he often took out his aggression on his only son, Reuben. Attempting to please his father, Reuben worked hard doing chores and trying to excel in school. 
But when Reuben was 17 years old, he got sick and missed a lot of school and had a nervous breakdown. After his father's death, Reuben helped take care of his mother and the family properties doing maintenance as needed. Mama was usually at work when Mr. Reuben, as the children called him, came by to fix things. But they always treated him with courtesy and respect because that's the way Mama had taught them to treat everyone, especially the elderly. Mr. Reuben appreciated that a lot. Mr. Reuben actually invited Mama to go to a movie with him. He even offered to take the two young girls, Carolyn and her younger sister Lamar, if that would make Mama feel better about going out on a date. Mama declined the offer. After Mama had become a widow, she resolved to devote her life to her children. Carolyn notes that her mother was invited out by other men, too, but Mama never had a date or romantic involvement after her husband died. In the early 1940s, the oldest sister, Gay, got married and moved out of the house. The next two boys, Howard and Norman, joined the Army when World War II started. So with only three children left in the house, Mama's life was somewhat easier now with fewer kids at home to look after, but she still struggled to make ends meet. In 1944, Mama moved to another house in Auburn, which was near her work at the university and just a few blocks from the high school where her kids were attending. Carolyn graduated from high school in 1946 at the top of her class. She enrolled in Alabama Polytechnical Institute, which is now Auburn University, and graduated at the top of her class in three years at the age of 20, the first of Mama's children to graduate from university. After the Ellis family moved, they did not see Mr. Reuben for almost 10 years. In the early 1950s, Carolyn and her mother attended a Christmas party, and Mr. Reuben and his mother were there. Carolyn notes in her book that she remembers pleasantly reminiscing with them about the years their family had lived at the house on Donahue Drive. That was the last time Carolyn remembers seeing Mr. Reuben. Years later, Carolyn would learn that Mr. Reuben had started drinking heavily in the 1950s and spent most of his time alone in his basement apartment. Perhaps he found in alcohol an escape from the miserable life he had endured for so many years. In 1954, Mr. Reuben's mother died, and Mr. Reuben was committed to the state mental hospital in Tuscaloosa at the request of his two sisters, who claimed that their brother was an alcoholic and not able to care for himself. Fortunately, a local CPA and retired Army colonel was appointed as the legal guardian for Mr. Reuben and handled his affairs in a professional way, but also with compassion and affection for this man who had been shunned by some members of his family. As the legal garden for Mr. Reuben, he visited the mental hospital from time to time, and although he felt Mr. Reuben was sane, he appeared to be happier at the mental hospital than at home by himself. Mr. Reuben lived the rest of his life at the mental hospital and died in 1963. On Monday, May 13, 1963, Mama got a phone call from one of Mr. Reuben's sisters requesting a meeting. When Mama learned that Mr. Reuben had died, she replied, Oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea that he was sick or that he had died. The sister informed Mama that Mr. Reuben had already been buried in a private service and no announcement had been published in the local papers. The reason for the meeting soon became very clear. 
It seems that Mr. Rubin had written a will in 1943 that left all of his estate to his mother. But if she died before him, which she did, then his estate would go to Mama, not his two sisters. It should be noted here that Mr. Rubin never married or had children, and his two sisters were both married and very well off. So it appears that Mr. Rubin believed that his first and only responsibility was to his mother, and he felt no financial obligations to his two sisters. The sister told Mama that if she accepted any of Mr. Rubin's money, then others in the community would think that she had had sex with him. The sister offered Mama a few thousand dollars to quietly resolve the matter. Mama told the sister that she needed time to consider the situation and discuss it with her children. Mama got a copy of the will and went straight to see her daughter, Carolyn, who had recently gotten married and moved back to Auburn. Mr. Rubin's will was filed for probate in June 1963. At that time, Mama and her family had no idea about the contents or amount of his estate. One of Mr. Rubin's sisters filed to contest the will. The other sister filed a petition to serve as administrator. The next few months were centered around gathering evidence for the trial. The opposing attorneys took a discovery deposition from Mama and others as witnesses. The focus was centered around the mental state of Mr. Rubin in July 1943 when he wrote and signed his will. Mama was both grateful and amazed at the support and interest of close friends as well as the people in Auburn who hardly knew her. The trial began in November 1963 before Judge Albert Hooten. There were 20 witnesses that claimed Mr. Rubin was crazy or of unsound mind. There were 19 witnesses that said the opposite, that he was sane and of sound mind at the time his will was written and signed in 1943. Part of the evidence included Mr. Rubin's three years of service in the Marines with an honorable discharge and his graduation from API, now Auburn University, with grades of 90 or above in advanced German, organic chemistry, economic entomology, and calculus. One local couple who did not testify in the trial but wrote to Mama to give encouragement and maybe offer some explanation on why Mr. Rubin included her in his will. They wrote, In the Ellis family, he found an oasis of good cheer, much fun, friendliness, and respect. He was grateful. He recognized the heroic struggle Miss Ellis was making to keep her family together and to properly rear her children. He knew his family did not need any financial assistance from him, and he saw that Miss Ellis did need assistance. His making her the beneficiary of his will was a deliberate effort of a sane man to serve a useful purpose and to express his gratitude. On the fourth day of the trial, Friday, November 1963, Several key witnesses were scheduled to testify, including Mama. During Mama's testimony, the sheriff of Lee County interrupted to hand the judge a note. After reading the note, the judge wrapped his gavel and announced, Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States is dead. JFK had been shot in Dallas. The judge told everyone in the courtroom to stand and bow their heads in silent prayer. After a few minutes, he said, Amen, the trial will resume. About 5.30 p.m. on Friday, the jury was sent out to decide on a verdict. 
It only took them 35 minutes to decide to uphold the will of Mr. Rubin and give Mama the $132,000 estate. After taxes and attorney fees were paid, Mama would get $100,000, which would equal about $1 million in 2023. Mama, who was now 63 years old, worked another year at the university until she received the estate payment and could retire in 1964. For the first time in her life, she could look forward to some leisure time and not be burdened with financial worries. She bought her first house for $18,500, which included a small backyard where she could grow her garden. She also used her green thumb to grow roses and several unique flowers. Mama also bought her first car, a blue-and-white Chevy 2, which is very similar to the Chevy Nova. She had not driven a car in over 30 years, so she had to take driving lessons, but she passed her driving test on the first try. Mama got a great deal of pleasure in driving her little car, and she gained a sense of independence. Mama did some traveling in her retirement. One trip she made in the summer of 1964 was to visit her son Howard, who was in the Marine Corps, stationed in Hawaii. It was while she was in Hawaii that Mama experienced Polynesian paralysis. On page 158, she writes about her trip to Hawaii. She had a window seat on the plane from Los Angeles to Honolulu, where she watched the sunset for two and a half hours. When she arrived in Honolulu, she was greeted by her son Howard, his wife Carol, and her grandson Marvin. Each of them draped a lay around her neck. She recalls that her visit to Hawaii was a continuation of fresh flowers, festivities, and beautiful sights to behold. She somewhat apologetically reported that she took a nap for several hours on the first day she was there, adding that it was almost unheard of her to take a nap during the daytime. She was relieved to learn that most people are affected by the abrupt changes of climate and have what is known as Polynesian paralysis. It might have taken her 64 years, but Mama finally found the time to be still, relax, appreciate nature, and enjoy life in this tropical paradise. After leaving Hawaii, Mama would stop in Los Angeles to see her other son, Norman, his wife, Susan, and her two little granddaughters. Norman and Mama attended a professional baseball game between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Atlanta Braves. This was Mama's first professional baseball game, and she would become a staunch Atlanta Braves fan. Mama continued to enjoy her family and friends for many years until her death in 1993. She is buried in Auburn, Alabama, a mighty widow who experienced Polynesian paralysis while in Hawaii. For more information about Polynesian paralysis, please visit our website at rxaloha.com. In the next episode of the Polynesian Paralysis Podcast, we review the book Sailing the Dream by John F. McGrady, published in 1999. Not just a sea story, Sailing the Dream is a metaphysical pilgrimage as well, encouraging the reader to join in and take a second look at the values that steer their own lives. Until next time, please take a few minutes each day to be still, relax, appreciate nature, and enjoy life. Enjoy Polynesian Paralysis, the sensible approach to mindfulness.